Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode of the Pack Filler once again brought to you by our friends at Scratch Labs. S-K-R-A-T-C-H labs.com. New flavor out, strawberry lemonade. It's just, it's summer in your water bottles. Trust me. Thanks to Scratch Labs for being a part of this podcast. Also, big thanks to our friends once again at Gooder. Go get Gooder because they've got a new line of shades out, you guys, and they are 25 bucks a pair. So stick that in your expensive sunglasses case, right? They're called the Circle G's and they got great names like freshly baked man buns. Strange things are afoot at the Circle G. Yeah, Bill and Ted reference right there. Midnight Ramble at Circle Bar, all kinds of fun stuff, and they're pretty hipster-looking glasses. So if you're into that style, go check them out or all their other styles. Big thanks to Gooder and Scratch Labs for being a part of the Pack Filler podcast. I almost screwed up the intro, but then I called attention to it. You can always tell when I'm in the studio alone because nobody makes fun of the intro music. Hey there. Technically, I am in the studio alone right now. I am recording this intro alone, but the show was not done alone. It was done with proper social distancing, and it was fun. Welcome to another episode of the Pack Filler. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're keeping your damn hands clean, and I hope you're getting outside. I don't know if you're able to get outside wherever you may be. Some people are locked in. I saw Rowan Dennis might have gotten in trouble the other day for going out for a drive. That guy's got anger problems, but he sure is fast on a bike, right? Today's episode was one that I would hope could have come to fruition for a while there. Thank God for social media. Thank God sometimes people accept me as a friend on social media, even though we might not be, quote, friends, end quote, because that's how this podcast came to be. 
Paul and I were in studio a couple weeks ago. If you haven't checked out our old guys watching old races video on our YouTube channel, we were able to uh, sit back, socially distance, and watch an old version of Perry roubaix on the day that Perry roubaix was supposed to be happening. And because it didn't happen, we got to sit back and watch that and, and kind of make our commentary along the way. It was also released as a podcast episode. A lot of you guys downloaded it, and I'm really curious as to what the hell you got out of just an audio version of two people watching a TV show. So if, if you're confused about that episode of the podcast, head on over to our YouTube channel and you can see what we were actually talking about. We've got the coverage of the race itself. And up in the corner, you've got two old guys drinking beers and watching the race and making stupid kind of Mystery Science Theater 2000 commentary over the top of it. But that got me thinking after that race and I missed the glory of those old broadcasts. I don't know if you were around in those times, but... Back in the day, we used to have to sit and wait for these things to come. We'd either read about them in Velo News and, or winning, or we would wait for uh, for John Tesh and Phil Liggett to provide us on CBS the coverage of these great races. And I grew up watching these races and idolizing the the guys on the screen, even you know, to to the incredible John Tesh soundtrack. And if you if you know what I'm talking about, you're probably smiling a little bit there too. And uh, there was one year in particular I remember watching very closely, and that was the 1985 Paris-Roubaix. And in that race was today's guest. And in that coverage, our today's guest provided one of the most memorable quotes ever broadcast on American television. And it sounds something like this. Anyway, Moser isn't finished yet. The Italian is back again. It forms a formidable tandem. As for Theo de Roy, I guess he's found John Tesh. Uh, you're looking like an animal. You wet, you don't have the time to. You wet your pants and you're riding in mud like this, and you're slipping and it's, uh, it's, it's a pile of shit. Uh, you must clean because otherwise you get mad. Will you ever ride it again? Sure, it's the most beautiful race in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. The suffering and the beauty that defines bicycle racing from the mouth of today's guest, Teo DeRoy on the pack filler. Okay, everybody, today's guest is one of the true hard men of the professional peloton. Over his career, he raked in over 30 victories, rode for some of the greatest teams in history, in my personal opinion, and worked as also a team manager on one of the greatest teams in history, the powerful Rabobank team. He's also the originator of what we Americans would arguably say is one of the best quotes ever to be broadcast on American cycling television. So let's welcome to the show the great Teo DeRoy. How are you, sir? I'm fine, thanks. After a hard day's work, it's okay. We're all we're here sipping coffee, and you're just finishing a hard day's work. So, um, well, first of all, speaking of working in days and things like that, how are things going for you in this quarantine status? <laughs> yeah. My uh, my agenda was uh, swept clean <laughs> within a couple of days, as from the half of March when um, we went into the lockdown. Um, 
so I'm passing my days with uh, gardening, uh, yeah, painting the house, uh, <laughs> doing some renovation on the house, and well, writing my columns and yeah, doing my administration, and, uh, well, keeping in touch with my my friends. And, well, well, so uh, living living in um, in a bubble. <laughs> I know the feeling. I've been trapped in this in this studio room for what feels like an eternity, and it's it's only been about three weeks for us here in the states, but yeah. it's it's getting quite arduous. So you know, with these interviews, I'm well known for starting with uh, a little bit of perspective, and for uh, some of the listeners who unfortunately might be new to the sport might not understand your uh, your history and your origin. I guess we could say within the sport. So um, for the sake of that, um, what got you involved into cycling when you were young, and what what led to the entry into the professional peloton? Uh, well, basically, I uh, got interested in cycling at a re- relatively late age. I think I was about around 16, and and before that, uh, uh, I was a a college student, and I grew up uh, on the countryside. My my father had greenhouses growing tomatoes and cucumbers and salad, Uh, and in those days, uh, you would work six, uh, uh, six and a half days a week. Saturday morning included. Saturday afternoon, the, the, my father went visiting colleague, colleagues with uh, also with greenhouses, or, or they came to my father and they they drank a beer and a brandy. On Sunday, he went to church, and on Monday, six o'clock, the work started again. So um, for six and a half days, so there was no time, no place for sports in those years in the sixties, and and I was the oldest son of the family, and normally. The oldest son is always predestinated to take over the, the business of, uh, of his father. Um, but my father thought to himself, well, I've got, I've got a clever boy, so I will send him to, uh, to college, maybe to university. He should study instead of working his balls off uh, six and a half days a week, uh, earning uh, a little money and a lot of responsibility. And well, yeah. basically, that's what I did. I went to college. Um, yeah, and then by coincidence, at 16, I I came across an ex-rider, amateur rider who uh, who, who won some races, and well, uh, I, at that time I was also playing football. But in the winter time, the matches were were always cancelled because of the bad weather, and I was getting so fucked up with uh, every every time these matches were cancelled that I wanted to do a sports. Which uh, which would never be cancelled. So and then by coincidence, I came across this ex-rider, and, and then um, yeah, and then the dice starts rolling, and the coincidence is no longer a coincidence. And then yeah, then it turns out to be that you are a very big talent, but but also because I have I have always been working hard and been riding to school ever since I was a small kid. When I was four years old, I had to go uh, to school on a trottinet. Three kilometers. Uh, uh, did half an hour, and then back back home again. Uh, <laughs> so it's one hour a day, and I was four years old. So oh my god, uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's why you have the talent for 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 these uh, for this endurance sport. That's yeah. yeah. So, 
so uh, according to my research, you turned pro in 1980. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, and you race not only on some of the biggest teams in history, but probably some of the most renowned directors, um, Walter Godefruit, of, of course, Peter Post. Um, yeah. So first of all, how would you describe your roles within those teams? What was your, your aspiration when you first turned professional and what was the, the, your, your established uh, duties within those teams itself? Well, when I turned pro with uh, Eisburg, the Eisburg team of Walter Godefoot, um, it, it was a team that uh, would turn out to be in a, in a trans- transgressional period because uh, Walter Godefoot was really uh, one of the sports directors of the new style. Yeah. The old style sports directors before the 80s or even in the beginning of the 80s, they were the... Uh, the old-fashioned Belgian sports director who'd um, would always always with intriguing deals, always implicated in intriguing deals and playing uh, playing games and, and putting together the, the, the riders against each other and, and uh, there were, there was the, the, the I mean the, the there were there were no physical trainers. Um, there were only only the only persons you would have to rely on were the so-called swineers, and they were they were self-proclaimed half doctors, and <laughs> I had no confidence at all in those people. Well, I've not with spoken, uh, they were also good good guys amongst them, but but my attitude was always. Well, Trust yourself and don't trust anybody else. Anybody else too quickly. And um, well, before before I turned pro, I finished uh, my business school, so I was a, a business graduate, which was which was already very extraordinary at that time because uh, riders became professional already when they were sixteen or seventeen, you know. And yeah, because the parents they were really believing in their little sons that they were going to be successful in the Tour de France and. Well, at that time, I was not interested in Tour de France. I was interested in finishing my uh, my business school. Wow. For me, that was more important. But nevertheless, I was I've always been with the top uh, amateur riders in the world. So I was one of the best amateur riders in the world. Yeah. So I've, I've I've always been thinking a lot about my personal position, my personal attitude attitude as a, as a professional sportsman, and also about about. Well, how far are you willing to go? How many risks are you willing to take? And well, after a couple of years, I, for me, it was very clear that um, I wanted to be a very good professional. I wanted to win. I wanted to win a lot, <laughs> not at any cost. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, yeah. That's something every sportsman has to find out himself if you uh, if you want to go. If you want to be a professional sportsman in whatever sports, everybody has to ask himself the question, how far am I willing to go to, uh, to achieve success? And at what price, at what cost? So, well, I very, at very early age, I already made my choice. So, and, um, well, Walter Godefroot, he was one of the sports directors, one of the young sports directors of his generation. He, he understood that. Um, and he also helped the riders making those choices. Like um, a half a year later, Peter Winnen became professional in the same team, and we were um, almost immediately on the same on the same um, frequency, yeah. same mindset. 
and uh, we were opportunistic riders. We had a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom in the races. And we were also very good riders, so you could, uh, you also got the permission to take your role in the team, uh, which was very interesting and very good. The the first three years with Walter Godefroy, yeah. get got very good memories uh, on this period. And and then to switch to a team such as so iconic well but for those people the listeners who don't know uh, Odafruit was with uh, TI Raleigh which is an incredibly iconic team uh for many many years I, I well, Odafruit was not with TI Raleigh eh? oh he was not post post okay I'm my apologies yeah, yeah post and no, then no. switching to that with with TI Raleigh and then uh which moved into your years with Panasonic. Uh, Peter Post, a very iconic director, very much within his own style, I guess we could say. Um, you had a pretty long-lasting relationship with Peter. What, um, so how, were, how was he as a director, and what was it like riding for that team? And, and God, with so many riders that came through the roster of that over, over yeah. the years. Yeah. Peter, uh, Peter Post was indeed a very iconic person. <laughs> a lot of charisma. When Peter Post entered the room, every everybody's attention was drawn by by Peter Post when he entered the room. You know, um, uh, he was also very outspoken. He was he is coming. He was coming from Amsterdam. You know, in in Holland, everybody knows the uh, the Amsterdam's humor, <laughs> the attitude of the Amsterdam's of the Amsterdam people. Uh, the Amsterdam guys are always. Like we say it in, in cycling, they are always trying to play with your balls, you know? <laughs> always trying to piss you off, always trying to make you angry. <laughs> so that you will, that you will, and when you're angry, you uh, you tend to uh, uh, try to get the best out of yourself because you're angry, you're motivated, so. Oh, wow. Uh, and with his Amsterdam's humor, he was always trying to motivate the rider, so his attitude was almost always that if if you want one stage it wasn't enough it had to be two if you want two stages it wasn't enough it had to be three three um if you won by one minute it wasn't enough it had to be by two uh there was always a mistake made in the race tactically or, or he, he was never satisfied and by, by because of this his attitude from february to Till October, we were, when we were racing, and we had a number on our backs, we were racing to win. We were always racing to win with the team, not individually, but also with the team. So we were always like, ah, shit, boss, we have to win again. It's not good enough, so we will show that we will be better today, you know. Uh, and then it wasn't good enough, and then <laughs> the next day, with uh, you were even more angry, and well, that's that's we raced from February till October. Wow! In the, in, in, in the Tour of Spain in April, we were racing against the best Spanish riders, and we were winning stages with the team. In May, we were racing against the best Italian riders with the team, and we were winning and had good classifications. In the Tour de France, we were racing against the best French guys, and of course. The world's best riders, yeah. But also in Paris-Roubaix and Tour of Flanders and Liège-Bastogne, all the classics, we were always racing to win. Um, 
and I, I that's really something that for me as a, as as a person also never never stop always always stay motivated um, always motivate your teammates uh, of course Post always had very very good riders in the team so that's also basically uh, why the team collapsed in in 1983 uh, because there was this big controversy between uh, Jan Raas and Peter Post. Because yeah, Jan Raas, of course, was the big director, the big captain on the bicycle. Yeah. And Peter, he was the big captain, the big director in the car. But Peter was not was really not a very perfect team director, tactically speaking. Jan Raas was, tactically speaking, stronger than Post. Uh, uh, but Post always was like, yeah, we won the race. Uh, he was very outspoken, you know, and, and uh, he draw the, the people always wanted to speak with Peter Post. And Jan Raas was a, he's coming from Zealand. He's modest, but very, very, very hard, hard-headed, you know, yeah. very, very strong, very stiff character, but not so expressive as Post. So at the end, it's... The, the two collided like two two blocks of granite, you know. Uh, and uh, well, in 1984, Raz went his way, and Post went the other way with Panasonic. And uh, yeah, I was a little bit in the middle of these of this controversy, but I had a lot of respect for Jan Raz. I had a lot of respect for Peter Post. But I thought, yeah, well, I I, I signed with Rally. I've been there only for one year, so. I want to stay loyal to Peter, so I stayed with uh, with Peter and, and Panasonic in uh, 1984 with Johan van der Velde, Henk Ruberding, Bert Oosterbos, not not to forget Bert Oosterbos, Peter Winnen. Yeah, man. Uh, and then, uh, then, yeah, then eight years with Panasonic, you know, and then and then you he asked you to be the sports director after finishing your career and. Basically, in the beginning of our career, I, I had a lot of, uh, I was often very angry with Peter Post because I, I thought he was impossible. Really? And then I was one of the writers who, uh, at a certain moment, I will never forget the moment. I think it wasn't too rain or whatever article or so. Peter was like, hell, he was so, he was so nasty, so <laughs> unsupportable, you know. So at a certain moment, I... I stood up and I, I said to him, "Well, I, I don't want to hear this shit anymore. I'm going to my room. You you you, you take another victim, you know." Yeah. That's that's the point where he started really respecting you, you know, because he liked riders who were looking for the confrontation, you know, not riders like always sitting a little in, in the wheel and not not too not with not too much initiative. And he liked to have the controversy in the team, and he liked. Riders to to uh, also to be aggressive, also to be verbally aggressive, and that they were not uh, that they did not agree so easily. And uh, that's that's how that's when he developed some more respect for me. And well, we still had our difficult moments sometimes, but yeah. Then I became his sports director for four years with Panasonic and Histor, and then we became friends. And uh, yeah until the end of his life in 2011 we were very close as friends wow and, uh, well I, i've got so many good valuable memories to uh, to him he is such an extraordinary person 
it, it's yeah, it's, uh, it's, made, it's meant a lot for me in my career, also in my private life. I can say, and yeah. I think my friend Hank Luberding, he will, uh, he will state the same. Really. Yeah. Uh, it sounds it sounds exhausting though to be able to have to to stay on as you say on that verbal competitiveness and along with the physical competitiveness you know I think about the physical realm when we talk about riders who just specialized for a very short amount of a period of the season now whereas you're saying back you know with Panasonic you guys were expected to race from April to October. Yeah. Yeah, I did I I did several seasons with 130 race days. Oh my gosh. Oh. That means that more than one day in three throughout the whole year, you are standing somewhere at the start line with a number on your back <laughs> from January till <laughs> till December. <laughs> <That's>... no, but, <laughs> but of course, the level the level was also different. Of course, yeah. you know, the speeds are higher, the equipment is different. Uh, uh, you you. you but when I when we raced in the Tour of Holland, after the Tour de France, after the Criteriums, after the Tour of Germany, oh, after all those classics, we 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 achieved an average speed maximum thirty seven kilometers an hour, <laughs> because the week after was the World Championships and the week after was the Tour of Catalonia. So, you know, the the level in races goes down because there's no way you can you can race for 130 days at the same level as they are racing nowadays. So, Man, man, oh man. So, um, Paris-Roubaix was supposed to have happened last weekend. And yeah. whether you know it or not, you became famous in this country in 1985, at least famous to me. Uh, Paul was telling me earlier um, that was 85 the only year you actually raced Paris-Roubaix? No, I did this several times. Oh, you did? Okay. Okay. I think First time was uh, uh, maybe maybe eighty three. Yeah, but I didn't I didn't last long in the race because um, I hated the race. I really hated the race. <laughs> you, you have to have a, a, a really incredible strong, incredibly strong mindset yeah. to to start in Paris Roubaix. If you don't have this mindset, you are you are like uh, feeling lost from the start and trying to, to, to find a reason to get out of the race, you know, to get to the showers. Because <laughs> it's so it's so fucking difficult. So <laughs> such a shit race. <laughs> and, uh, and then in eighty five uh, I was not on the rust on the rooster for Perubet, so I didn't have to race. So I was counting off the days until the race was over. So the um, I didn't know if I had to start. And then two days before the race, Peter Post calls me and he <laughs> says, "Hey, uh, Theo, I need you in Peruba." I said, "Oh no, fucking hell, no! I don't want to race, man." <laughs> oh no, oh no, no! You must, you must ride. And uh, we are also in the Tour of Americas, and uh, I don't have enough riders, and uh, some guys got sick, and you must be there, and uh, you can be domestic for Phil Anderson, and uh, if you. Uh, if you take care of Phil Anderson, the first 110 kilometers, when when uh, when we hit the first uh, cobblestone sections, and uh, he is in a good position, and you can give a wheel or sometime maybe stay with him as long as possible. And when you reach the chat, the first uh, feet zone, 140 kilometers, you can drop out of the race. Uh, if you did your work for me, it's okay. 
So, okay, well, <laughs> I didn't have any other options, so, but to uh, obey to the orders of Peter. So with my tail between my legs, I went to, uh, to Compiègne and uh, uh, I opened up the curtains in the morning and uh, the, the landscape was white. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, <laughs> this is going to be hell today. But I said, okay, I'll do my job as good as possible and I'll see that I can get to the third feed zone and doing my job and then uh, I can go to the showers and then it's finished. Okay, well, so I was, the snow was gone, but it was uh, just above zero centigrade and we start we're starting of course i stayed with uh, with phil phil anderson and uh so i uh, he was in my wheel and when there was a little bit of crosswind i uh, i kept him out of trouble and a little bit in the front and in the places in the back where where there were the least risk of crashes and at a certain moment i think it was only after 10 or 15 kilometers i uh i was i was taking him to the front of the peloton and I reached the front of the peloton and there were some guys attacking and another few guys attacking and another few guys attacking the speed of going up and all of a sudden I feel a hand on my ass it was Phil pushing me and he shouted to me go go I said go go I have to stay with you man <laughs> then I went and the speed went really really up and we were, you know, on the rivet with the side wind, and I was like uh, trying to trying to grab on the wheel in front of me. Uh, and I was riding like that for a few kilometers. I look around and I see this enormous big gap. I said, "Oh no, this is not possible." <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to the first beat zone and then look for the showers instead of being in a breakaway. <laughs> so I was hoping that. The peloton was would be coming back. Sixteen guys break away, and of course my orders were, were to be, to stay with Phil, but it was Phil himself who pushed me in the breakaway. So I I was not feeling guilty about being in the breakaway, but I I was really not feeling at ease. So and it was raining and there was wind and it was shit. And all. <laughs> so we come to the first cobblestones, and I I said, I man. Grab a hold of your, grab a hold of yourself. You know, stop nagging, and you're in the situation, and uh, no, there's no way you can change it. So then you might as well make the best out of the situation. So stop feeling sorry for yourself and, and, and go in the race. So I go to the front. I hit the first cobblestones. I was uh, on the front of the group, and I was like, <laughs> I feel nothing. <laughs> yeah. I went over the cobblestones and it was they were slippery and, and muddy and uh, you know how they are, especially yeah. when it's wet. It's incredible. I know I, I came across the first cobblestones with no problems at all, and there was only five guys left. I mean, hmm? okay, well, that's uh, that's a good cat tactic. To start in the front and stay in the front. So that's basically <laughs> what I did uh, for the rest of the of the race. So uh, we went through Arenberg. I lost all of the guys. I was alone, and then went through Arenberg, and then a few guys came back, and then between Arenberg and uh, the, the second feed zone, uh, Francesco Moser came with us, and 
I stuck into the wheel of uh, Francesco and uh, well, we lost uh, the other guys. And I was sitting in the wheel of Francesco thinking to myself, but what is happening here, man? I am feeling better than, than Moser because I saw Moser having trouble on the cobblestones on the difficult sections. And I was still feeling nothing. Like, I'm going over it like it's, it's, it's just an old road. <laughs> and then, and now I, start, I, start, I really started thinking, imagine, imagine, man, that Moser is pulling through and you can, you can come in Roubaix and, and race for the win. Because we, at 200 kilometers, we still had two or three minutes lead or something. I was like, wow, man, I was feeling so strong. Yeah. Because I was really thinking, arriving in Roubaix with the first guys in Paris-Roubaix, that's like, that's, that's huge, you know? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, after 220 kilometers, I think, uh, the first chasers of the pack, uh, they, 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 they reeled us in and they went so fast and then... Uh, if a few a few kilometers before you've been thinking about getting to Roubaix with the first riders, and then they 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 pass you at at, a, at enormous speed, and then all of a sudden you lose everything. You know, you're like an empty balloon. It's like <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> everything is gone. You know, you feel the fatigue, you feel the pain, and you see that uh, you 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 you. You will not. You realize yourself. You will not finishing Roubaix with the first, and then you you are in position ten or fifteen, and but you are not motivated at all anymore. You know, like yeah, uh, what am I doing here now? It's, well, for me, it's over. And then I saw these fans at the side of the road, the supporters, and um, and uh, well, they cheered for me, and I said, well, I'm going home. I mean. What what what's the big what's for me a twentieth place or so, uh, and then go going for another. You have to stay for another thirty kilometers on the bike. You feel all the pain and fatigue. I stopped with these fans. I said, uh, "Can you take give me a, a hike to Roubaix?" Yeah, of course. And then this motorbike stops with uh, John Tesh and the cameraman, and uh, well, they started the interview. So. I was like, yes, what's for me, it, it, it was not important anymore. Like, yeah, fuck, it's over. And what a shit mess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going home, you know, I want to go home to the showers. And yeah, then you give this interview. But on the other hand, you also think during the interview, I was really thinking that I could finish in Roubaix with the first guys. And yeah. it, gave, it gave me such a morale, you know. And on the one hand, you thought, well, it's it's so shit, it's so difficult. On the other hand, it's so beautiful. Yeah, it's it's, it's the most beautiful race in the world. Yeah. And and that, yeah, and that... I, I've never realized that, that that this was a good interview. You know, and like a few months later, I came in the United States for a race. I think it was tour of well, it was a few months later. Yeah, and then Third the people trophy. came to me. Yeah, you got a dog. We mentioned we, we named him to your to you name Theo. We mentioned we named him Theo, our dog. <laughs> Why would you name a dog Theo? Yeah, you're our hero, Perry Rubé. It's a hero, Perry Rubé. <laughs> what happened in Perry Rubé? No, <laughs> 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 and now yeah, now the funny situation is now in 
2020. Yeah. I'm discussing with you guys. And, uh, well, it, uh, <laughs> it's so, it's so summed up what I consider what everything I love about this sport. It's the brutality. It's the, the suffering and elements like that. And then the fact that people sometimes look at us, a cyclist and say, why the hell do you do this to yourself? And you're like, your your last quote was well it's the most beautiful race in the world and then you you started laughing and i think you had a, a cough of some sort that sounded like it was just you know your lungs were full of hell and it just yeah it, 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 yeah. it romanticized everything for me you know as as a as an american we only got to watch the john tesh broadcast paul when was it probably two weeks after the event yeah, maybe. two to three weeks yep mm-hmm. and um and so we waited you know baited hook to watch these events and then to have them on tv and to you know we you know it's just not to sound overly romantic but i'm sitting there on the floor you know cross-legged staring at the tv like a kid watching sunday cartoons you know it was just and then to and that quote kind of summed up everything so majestically at the time yeah but it's it, but really it's it's really the what cycling means what cycling is you know it's 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 extremely beautiful and it's also extremely ugly yeah uh, which is the case with all top sports you know the, the, you, you cannot have some extremely beautiful top sport without an extremely ugly side that that always comes together <laughs> yeah uh, but I think the the extremely ugly side in cycling makes you very humble. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. That's what I think is so beautiful about this sport. Because... Basically, everybody who will reach the top in cycling will always stay in his heart a very humble person because you know that you will be sleeping in shitty hotels, that you will be facing incredible uh, atmospheric conditions, that you will that you will encounter incredible physical suffering, uh, uh, pain with crashes and. And from one moment to the other, your whole season can be on the deck, you know, and you you, you crash at 70 kilometers an hour. It's, it makes you so humble. <laughs> if uh, you can only you can only survive in this sport if you stay humble, uh, and that's why the cyclists are always so accessible. You know, the most most of the guys they are cool, accessible, and yeah. Because you know what, what it takes to uh, to do this at, at this level. It's, you, you stay humble. 
you stay modest. Yeah. Were there any particular writers from from the time you were writing that you really respected and um, maybe admired or something like that? But, you know, because in a lot of cases we get listeners to this show who aren't up to speed on on the beautiful history of this sport and um, if they're you know and understanding some of the really classic moments and writers that that kind of created what we have today um, I, I think is very important so are there any writers that you looked up to or or you respected quite greatly at the time I've got so many I can give you so many examples but I, I will I will just I would just name two names, you know, yeah. I, can, I can mention 20 or, 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 or 200. But if you take Joop Soetermelk, for example, yeah. uh, Joop, Joop Soetermelk was the best Dutch rider ever. And um, of course, I raced uh, with Joop, never in the same team, but uh, well, we, we raced world championships together in the same team. Um, uh, at Rabobank, he was one of my assistant uh, sports directors. Um, but I've got so incredibly much respect for Job because he is he is really the example of a, of a rider who has always stayed by himself, modest, determined, such a, a, such a good professional, enormously talented, but also an incredibly nice guy you know it's uh that's that's one of the guys i have so much respect for i think for from all the dutch riders job sutermel is the guy i i respect most and well one of the guys that i saw coming was uh in my in my era was olaf ludwig really of course you know you know olaf ludwig absolutely yeah and uh he, he was, uh, by the end of the 80s, he was the best East German rider ever in East German cycling because he was Olympics champion in, uh, in Seoul in 88. Uh, I think he won 37 stages in the peace race, which was, at that, at that time, this was the, the Tour de France of the East. Yeah. Uh, because the, the, the communist riders from East Germany and... and Czech Republic, Poland, Russia, etc. They were not allowed to race with the professionals, and they were amateurs because of the communistic system. And um, yeah, Olaf, of course, he, he he was the best East German, maybe the best East Bloc rider ever. Uh, in 1979, I raced the Tour of East Germany as amateur rider. Um, I beat the whole. East Block selection and, and some, some other famous East Block riders by winning the first stage and uh, with 30 kilometers, 40 kilometers solo alone. And I finished with one minute ahead of, uh, of all the elite guys from East Germany. And uh, I had the yellow jersey for, uh, for three days. And Olaf Rutting was riding his first amateur race in this tour of East Germany. And he also won a stage. He was very young at the time. And uh, we, ne- we, we did not speak to each other because he was, he was very young and uh, he was just coming. You know, I was already one of the world's best riders. He was just beginning. It, it was just become, he just became amateur. I still have a newspaper clipping from uh, Neues Deutschland, which is the, the East German communist newspaper. 
with uh, the stage win of Olaf and with me in the yellow jersey in the same article. So we are in the same article with uh, with our pictures. Wow. And then 10 years later in 89, the Berlin Wall comes down. And then, you know, the road is open for all the East Bloc riders who suffered under, under the communist regime also to become professional and to, to come to the West. And Olaf, of course, was at the, at the end of his amateur career. He was actually thinking about stopping because there was, yeah, in his, in, in, in his German uh, uh, system, and as an amateur, he, he achieved everything. He was already 30 years old, so there was nothing more, there was nothing more left for him to, uh, to have ambition for. And then the war comes down, and he can become professional. And Peter Post contracted Olaf Ludwig. And um, so he came to the Panasonic team in uh, 1990, which was my last year as a rider. And uh, yeah, Peter was looking for for a place to live for Olaf because Olaf came from East Germany. He didn't have a place to live. And well, I, I recently moved because of private problems. So I was I was living alone in a small apartment. And uh, one of my neighbors had a very big house. So I proposed this neighbor to host uh, a professional rider, uh, Olaf Ludwig. And oh, he was willing to think about it. Well, to, to, to shorten the, the, the whole story, Olaf became my neighbor, came to Valkenburg. And the first thing I did was, of course, looking for the newspaper clipping in the German newspaper where we were both on the same picture. And <laughs> we remembered it very well as well as I did and we were training together and it was, he came all the way from East Germany with his old rusty Lada <laughs> and at an, in the evening of some dreary evening in January, my neighbor, Jo and me were waiting for Olaf to arrive from East Germany and he was late and he was late and we were waiting. He had to arrive around oh. five o'clock and in the end he arrived two hours later with his Lada, very old car, but for each German, <laughs> and it's of course a very, very, a very sophisticated car. Yeah. And he had a, 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 you know, a roof rack on the car with his suitcases and the, all the stuff that he had taken from East Germany because he was staying alone for half a year with, uh, with my neighbor. And, um, no, the reason of his delay was that, uh, he was going out on the highway in East Germany and his whole roof pack was blown off the roof with all his equipment and suitcases and everything was on the highway. So, <laughs> so he had to grab all the stuff and uh, no, try to find a way to, to, to get it on the car again. And, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> and then the first race he did, he won by 10 seconds uh, advantage. The guys were laughing for him because he had an enormous, he had enormous muscles, enormous legs, and uh, the professional thought, oh, this guy, well, he's too fat, he's too big, he will never win a race. Well, first race, puff, and that was Olaf Ludwig, and uh, we became also friends. And one year later, I became his sports director, and yeah, he was such a good rider. If he could have become professional eight or nine years before. He would have won Tour of Flanders, Paris-Roubaix, World Championship, 
wow. races like that, you know. Wow. Yeah. So I want you know I want to touch base on your years as as in management and working with Rabobank. But before I get to that, in your perspective, what is the differences between being a pro from the '80s to the '90s and up until today? We uh, we talked earlier about riders specializing in specific races, specific uh, periods of the year, which you guys didn't have that option. But I'm sure there are a lot more things that have changed and evolved through uh, through the professional ranks. What would you say are the differences that have changed throughout those years? Now, first of all, of course, the equipment. Like, uh, yeah. we got rid of the uh, toe clips, and um, <laughs> you know, yeah, when, when when I started as a professional, we only had six or seven speed. The smallest gear I ever had in my races was around 42, 23 or 39, 23. Oh. <laughs> if you uh, if you ask for a 25, uh, the mechanic said, "Okay, I will give you a pair of running shoes with it, so you can run." Uh, you, know, you can also see if you see the old images of uh, the clients those days you see you see the guys you see us on, on, on two big gears you know yeah way too big we didn't have an alternative 23 25 was was smallest and, and nowadays they are going over mountains of 20 25 percent with a uh, with a 32 or something you know yeah. we didn't have the smallest gear was 23 39 that's a big difference also makes uh, it, 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 there are a lot more big mountains like Anglirou, Kronplatz, uh, you know, these exceptionally steep mountains. It has changed, of course, the, the, the way of racing. Uh, of course, the, the, when the wall fell, we, we could participate in the Olympics, which is not for professional racing, not a very big deal, but of course you get a category of riders uh, who will enrich the sport, like Olaf Ludwig, Ekimov, uh, Abdul Japarov, uh, you know, guys, the guys who were, were with PDM, like Uarab, uh, Ampler, guys like that, you know. They changed also the, the, the face of the sport. And then, of course, you got, um, yeah, the, the trainers and the doctors, it became, it became, a lot more professional but of course what really what really what really made the sport suffer uh, but also other sports and junior sports was of course when when apo came into sight and into yeah. in reach of a very wide uh, uh, category of, of endurance sportsmen in all kinds of sports and it it, it changed it changed the sport dramatically in all endurance sports. Uh, yeah. Well, that was a reality we had to cope with. And that was a very, very, very difficult reality. It, was, it started in 1992, 93. Uh, you know the whole story. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a reality that we, we, we were not able to change. Um, of course, of course, the controls became better and after after 10 15 years the problem was not solved but within it was it was within reasonable limits and which was very good but it's uh, it it made a lot of people suffer and did that 
were you ever approached with any of that stuff? Now, I, I you know, and I, if it's if you don't want to speak about it, I, that's fine. I was going to ask you about that two seven two thousand seven tour, um, where you ha- you were forced to you well you weren't forced you chose to resign pretty abruptly, and um, you you were forced to make a decision in regards to some of those controversial issues, and that had to have been a a tough decision to make. Oh, well, yeah, of course it was it was a tough decision, but. Um it was it was not a difficult decision because as i told you before i mean what any sports you will choose and you will want to reach the top you have to you have to ask yourself uh, what am i willing to invest what am i willing to pay what are the risks that i'm willing to take and my philosophy has always been um, i want to be good but not at any price which is also something I never imposed my riders. Uh, you have to win at any price. I always told my riders, guys, we want to win, but not at any price. So I will never ask a rider to pay uh, to pay with his health or to take risks that will endanger uh, his future after his cycling career. I mean, that's not worth it. That's not worth it. And, um, and of course, each rider must make the choice that he wants to make. I mean, that's that's life. Everybody makes his own choice. There's no way uh, a director or, 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 or Jacques Rogge or Heinz Verbrugge or, or uh, you know, uh, Trevor Tigert can prevent people from making other choices. I mean, that's, that's the freedom of choice. Yeah. I mean, um, and if you have this complex reality, like APO, you know, you have, you have this product and then you have, uh, you have very keen people, you have insane people, you have stupid people, you have ignorant people, you have idiot people, you have clever people and everybody has to deal with the same situation, you know? so and everybody will make his choice and um, I'm willing to take I was willing to take responsibility I always took responsibility for myself but also for other people and my philosophy has always been guys I want to win but not at any price well if there are nevertheless there are writers who think okay but uh, fuck it I will go my own way. Well, I'm willing to take responsibility, but if it goes too far, then I will also take the responsibility to put the knife in the table. And that was a a very powerful decision to have made, not only to, um, you know, take take your, your, your leading rider and say, nope, it's over, but also to make that decision to say, you know what, I'm going to step away. Um, and yeah, well, what, what other option would I have? I mean, if you, if you take the yellow jersey out of the race and the next week if the, is the Classica San Sebastian, imagine yourself, me arriving at the Classica San Sebastian. I mean, I was on CNN, BBC, uh, World News, uh, Fox. I mean, everybody was trying to, to get a hold of me, you know, for the story. For me, there was no story. There was my decision, and I knew when I took the decision that that 
that it would also be the last decision that I would ever take in in this team. So, yeah, you cannot you cannot continue as 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 if nothing has happened the week after or the month after because this will have such an enormous aftermath that that you you cannot continue anymore. That's impossible. Did you feel that you had more to give to the sport at the, after that year? Were you were you were you disappointed in in your exit? No, it's, no. Yeah, you know, it's there has been there were some lawsuits uh, between Russians and Rabobank, and there was a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of juridical things going around. So that and also. That lasted for another five years, so this, wow. yeah, that was that was very difficult. And uh, but nevertheless, as I told you guys, I mean, if you if you are a top sportsman, then you know that there are guys who are willing to take enormous risks. And and then I turn back the clock, and uh, and and I go back to the age of seventeen. I was. A college student at that time, I I had a good I, I I speak six languages because I was a college student, and I saw guys from my age stopping their school, becoming already uh, half professional. You know, they they were junior amateur riders, having better results than me, uh, but they stopped the the, the the college. They stopped studying. Well, I'm going to be professional. And I said, well, I'm not so sure about it, but <laughs> one thing I want to be sure about is that I finish my study before I become professional because I think that's a better choice. But I already made the choice when I was 17, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then you go through, throughout life. And of course, when, when the game gets bigger, the decision gets bigger also. And you see, you see, your writers or you see colleagues making the same mistakes as you ha- uh, uh, as you have seen making them when they were 17. Well, I mean, that's not a big deal, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Life. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, yeah. So now that we're we're up to a current time period, we're obviously in a gigantic uh, shift within the sport with uh, with this pandemic and everything going on. Um, what are your thoughts on the state of the sport of cycling? Um, well, maybe before this pandemic and now what we're going to be seeing in the future with, with events being canceled and riders teams being, um, cut back and staff and, um, how is our recovery going to be from all this in your, in your eyes? It's, um, it's very complex of course, but I can, well, I can, I, I think I, I, I've, I've always been working with, I, with teams, so I will, I will reason from out from out the perspective of teams. In a team, you only have got one source of income, basically, which is uh, your sponsor. There, there's nothing else. Like if you have a football club, you have the merchandising, you have the television rights, you have your um, your yeah. online your online online uh, football gaming, uh, e-football, e- e- and you've got a lot of resources, uh, transfers, of course. In cycling, there's only sponsoring. Um, 
which makes you as a team very vulnerable. Yeah. If you if you have a team now, you are in this situation. Your sponsor, like Sunweb, doesn't sell any uh, holidays anymore, and it will last for another three, four, five months. Yeah. Or you have a sponsor like uh, Bahrain or Emirates or, uh, or Astana or whatever, who is uh, depending on the oil industry, and the oil industry is collapsing. And I mean, and the situation continues. I mean, what's what's in it for a sponsor if you uh, if you can do the Tour de France and you can make publicity, but you're not selling anything anymore. So, yeah. so the Tour de France is nice, but and it's very good that the Tour de France is is, is taking the lead again. But this is also the Achilles of cycling because the Tour de France determines about seventy five percent of the of the return of investment for. For all sports, you know, yeah. to the France, you can score seventy-five percent of your success in the year. Your uh, sportive and commercial success, publicity, publicitary success, and so the Tour de France is is is, is taking the lead now. But Tour de France is also a commercial, has also a commercial interest, uh, has a foremost a commercial interest. UCI is not taking, not really taking the lead. It's it's the Tour de France again who takes the lead, which makes it which makes the sport very depending on, on say one one player with commercial interest. There's yeah. and the the teams well they wanted they tried to create their own platform with Velon, tried to create their own races, tried to create make a success out of it, but uh, they get. They get opposition from the UCI. They get opposition from other organizers. And well, take for another example: if you want to commercialize the signals that your riders are emitting during the Tour de France, like uh, heartbeat, speed, yeah. uh, the, 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 these kind of uh, uh, data, uh, you can say, "Okay, we own the rider. We own the space around the rider." So we want to commercialize it. And then the Tour de France said, uh-uh. Wow. It's not going to happen because the air in which the data will be sent belongs to France, to the Tour de France. So oh my gosh. If, you, if you want to use the data, you have to pay for the air first. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, you, can, you can think a lot of, a lot of creative ideas commercialize to, to give a more solid base for the team but then it means also that they become that they get more power which is not in the interest of the Tour de France of course no, that's basically the game in cycling wow. so the, 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 the situation of the teams is, is very precarious of course of the organizers as well so I, there's no way you can predict the turnout of this crisis but yeah oh god it's. It, I. I don't know if you helped me. <laughs> no. I want to. I want a calm, reassuring voice that everything's going to be all right. <laughs> no. No, yeah, we, of course, we we were always continue cycling, but yeah, yeah. You, know, you know, nobody knows how this will end. Oh boy. Okay. So, um, one of my my last uh, questions for you is, you know, you, okay, left uh, team management, but you've been uh, obviously incredibly busy ever since. 
Um, Paul and I were speaking before we called you today about the creation of TDR Bikes and your work in sports management. So you're still a pretty active guy. So what are some of these things that have um, that have kept you busy? Yeah, the bike, the e-bike was a very, very nice, very special project. And we won the Eurobike Gold Award in 2011 with our e-bike. And uh, it, it, it was my idea. We, I developed it with a, a guy from my community, and it came complete. It was completely something that we invented ourselves. Also, the technique and the, the electronics, etc. But well, the, the things became very complicated when when uh, one of our suppliers went bankrupt and, and oh, left wow. us with a lot of technical problems. And, and yeah, then and we had a very bad season uh, where the weather is concerned and. and not many sales and uh, financial crisis also the banks were not willing to move and well so i had to stop in 2014 with uh, tdr bikes so which was a uh, well in this it was a wrong period maybe uh, yeah so okay. i'd say the bankruptcy of this uh, important electronic supplier well i had some bad luck of course but well i, I continued with uh, with my uh, with my riders management, and I, I still have a, f- a few guys helping at a distance. I am now implicated with the Kai Race project for Kai Race is going for the hour record in 2021. Wow. Kai was one of my riders in 2007, as you maybe remember. Yes. And he crashed in the Tour de France in 2007, in, in which I was also working. And, and yeah, yeah. Was in a coma for eleven days. You know, I'm helping him for to achieve his goals. And, yeah. And then I'm writing a lot of columns, which uh, which I like a lot. I like to write. And I like to write about my sport, about lifestyle, about politics, about philosophy. Philosoph- yeah, writing philosophical things about our society, about sports, about yeah. And you're. How you can be a better, how you can be a better human being. I like that. I like that. You know, that's that's. I I, I had a couple more, but I think I'm just gonna. I think that's a perfect uh, stopping point right there with that. Um, I don't. I, again, I I don't want to sound like I'm this gigantic pie-eyed little boy, but um, I hope you understand the influence that you had upon a lot of cyclists. Paul and I we were reminiscing. We did a a little mock coverage of uh, of an older version of Perry roubaix and um throughout it we were speaking of of your careers and things like that and how it was such an influence upon us as we never reached no we never became professionals i i took your advice more or less and you know followed that path and went to college but um it, it, the cycling bug has never left and it was from watching your generation and watching those incredible races well that's Thank you for the compliment, but that's also that I am getting more and more aware of because recently I, I joined the TI Rally Vintage Fan Club. Yeah, guys from England who are crazy about the TI Rally bikes and the, the TI Rally era, and I actually these guys are making me enthusiastic again <laughs> because they 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 put the mirror in front of me and say, hey guys. Look, look to yourself and look how special you guys were. Yeah. And uh, you, you realize yourself how, how much fun we had 
when we saw you guys racing, when you were racing on, on the bikes that we own now, yeah. uh, when you were racing in the clothes that we are wearing now. And uh, we are so proud to, uh, to be able to, uh, uh, to be able to, to, to ride with you guys and to, uh, to discuss cycling and, and, and the past and the future and to be able to wear the same colors again, ride the same bike. So, uh, yeah. you know, you, you do not realize that yourself. Yeah. You do your job and you hang in there and you stay humble because it's so difficult. And, and now, so many years later, you, you start getting aware of the, the impact that you had on, on, on people uh, enjoying the sport, enjoying cycling, which is nice. It's, it's very rewarding. Good. Good. It's about time, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, man, thanks again for your time, and I appreciate having, having you on the show. Yeah, it's very special to discuss on the other side of the world with uh, people from Spokane, which is a very famous cycling community in the United States. Oh, I'm so, uh, it, 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 wow. You know my town? This is okay. I'm impressed. Spokane, Washington. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. That was, uh, that was just basically like setting a golf ball on a tee <laughs> and just letting it fly and handing him a club verbally. He certainly has a lot to say. And, and, Obviously, he's not a bunch of squishy. You know, of course, my my intrigue with that guy was his little statement in '85 yeah. about the about Perry Roubaix. I didn't know his situation prior to that point. But yeah, he didn't even he he really wasn't a fan of the of my favorite race. Yeah. You know, but um, knowing his background, working hard, that was what intrigued me a little bit in the '80s. Are those type of personalities? People got out of the fields, out of the mines out of the you know factories yeah. too and and they were hard toiling individuals and that sport fit it well so and how how he came to that conclusion um after arenberg of saying all right stop it just quit being a baby <laughs> and complaining yeah and i've thought of many times i've been in that situation and i don't know if i've said quit being a baby i might have just kept being a baby and uh and to hear that perspective on it was yeah i don't think i've ever even pushed past there's many times where i thought well you know fuck it like he said yeah you know <laughs> yeah well um the quote was for those who never knew it um i guess we could say you probably know it even better than me yeah so tesh runs <laughs> up to him and he and he's like tail you know how was it out there oh this race is a pile of shit yeah and he <laughs> and he kind of grinned a little bit and you know that cbs is like uh, what do we do with this yeah. and he's like he gets in the car. There might have been some editing. He was walking to his car when he made that statement, and he says, "No, this, this race, it's just a pile of shit. You don't have time to pee. You piss your pants. It's, yeah. you know, it's horrible out there." And and he goes, "It's just a pile of shit." And they said, "Well, are you going to race it again?" And that's when he says, "Of course, it's the most beautiful race of the world." And then he does, which anybody who's raced the crick coughed afterwards, yeah. you take a deep breath <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. and you can't control it. And, he, so. and they laughed. And yeah, there was yeah, a bit everybody of humor laughed, that, yeah. You know, and and he, to, he, yeah, yeah. That just sums it up perfectly, and that's what I, I loved about mm -hmm. that. And to hear his perspective and how staying humble about everything, and now that it's it's he's coming to that realization that, wow, I guess we were kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. So... Um, uh, a couple uh, listeners were asking Scott Bork in particular mm -hmm. when after our Perry Roubaix coverage, say, well, you know, someday you should get Teo DeRoy on. And I went, oh, yeah, right. 
Well, I reached out, and he was he was fortunate enough to be able to come on and, and speak with us. Uh, for those of you new to the sport, look up these guys. Look up that 85 Perry-Roubaix. Uh, yes, we, we were mocking uh, an a 88 Perry-Roubaix just mm-hmm. a week ago, but... I don't think we were we weren't mocking it. We no. were we you and I were like those kids in a candy store, yeah. then, you know. <laughs> yes, we were. And it was just mm-hmm. it's great. These guys are legends of the sport and it's so nice to be able to hear them and, and hear that that passion still for it. Mm-hmm. Oh man. So there we are. Uh, another episode of the Pack Filler podcast. If I were a young kid, I'd say like and subscribe, but uh send us uh, <laughs> send us any kind of uh, suggestions uh, again. Having tail on was a suggestion of, of a couple listeners, so I appreciate you guys uh, lighting the fire under me. And uh, I guess that's it. We'll talk to you next week. See you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.